I'm Seth for Privacy, and thanks so much for joining us on the journey to sovereignty. We're beyond thrilled to have a place for us to chat about all things sovereignty, the why and how we're reclaiming your digital sovereignty, and to give you all a chance to chime in, ask questions, and join the conversation. Journey to Sovereignty is brought to you by Foundation, where we build Bitcoin-centric tools that empower you to reclaim your digital sovereignty. This includes our Passport Hardware Wallet and Envoy mobile app. This episode, we're breaking down a foundational intersection, how privacy and sovereignty must go hand-in-hand for human freedom to flourish. As always, I'm joined by Bitcoin Q&A, Head of Customer Experience here at Foundation, and our CEO and co-founder, Zach Herbert. How's it going, guys? It's going very well, Seth. Thank you very much. I'm a pleasure to be back on for uh, week two of our spaces. Looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, going great. Thanks, Seth. Yeah, yeah. Really looking forward to this topic. We we hinted a lot about this intersection between privacy and sovereignty on uh, on the last Journey to Sovereignty, where we, we kind of uh, outlined what sovereignty is, why it's important, uh, what we value about it. Um, but this week, I really wanted to dive more into the privacy side of things. And, and obviously, that's a that's a key focus for me. I mean, it's it's in my my NIM that I go by, Seth, for privacy. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to jump into that today. And, and really, before we dive too far in, I want to set the stage for what privacy is all about. Um, and uh, I want to hear kind of what your guys' thoughts are on what privacy is and, and why it's important to you. Yeah, I guess uh, I can kick it off. Um, when I uh, first got into the Bitcoin space, I wasn't uh, as much of a privacy advocate as I, as I am now. It's kind of something that's grown um, with me as I've fallen down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Uh, and, but in terms of privacy, one of the uh, the short quotes, and I forget who coined the term now, so hopefully one of you guys can save me here, um, but that, that sums up what privacy is, is um is about having the ability to selectively re- reveal yourself to others or to the world as you see fit. So it's it's privacy for me um, is is just about having that uh, ability or that autonomy to to choose what parts of yourself uh, that you share with the rest of the world. So that could be anything from uh, your first name. Uh, it could be your address. It could be your uh, preferences. Um, it could be anything to do with your life. Um, having uh, privacy around that, those pieces of information, who and how, when and where you share those pieces of information and who with um, is what privacy is to me. Um, and that is something that uh, wasn't, wasn't like I say, important to me as I first uh, joined the Bitcoin space. Um, it was the, the people that, uh, that sort of helped me and guided me down the rabbit hole that uh, kind of woke me up for for the need to to focus a little bit more on privacy and why why it is important and the implications of not what the implications of not having some privacy for any aspect of your life um what the implications of that could be and i'm sure we'll, we'll be diving further into that later completely agree i think we went through a similar journey q a where i did not know too much or care too much about privacy until i started going down the bitcoin rabbit hole and uh, inundating myself with all the different Bitcoin podcasts and Twitter and content over the years. Um, and I think where privacy makes a lot of sense for people where uh, I think everyone understands right away is when you talk about like your your financial privacy, which when we talk about things like Bitcoin, uh, it's just it's just so clear. You know, I think that uh, people have different privacy preferences when it comes to different as- aspects of their life. For example, if you look at what uh, 
how different people share things on social media. Different people have their uh, their Instagram accounts uh, public, for example. So there's a lot of different preferences. But when it comes to financial privacy, I think most of us can agree on the fact that you know we don't really want other people to know how much money we make, what our net worth is, and so on. I think just financial privacy is so important. And I think for me, that was a starting point where as soon as I realized, wait a minute, you know, we're we're using a public ledger for Bitcoin. Uh, what are the implications of that? What does privacy on Bitcoin actually look like? To me, it was like such a no brainer to realize, like, oh, you know, I, I want my my uh, my finances to be private. I don't want to reveal that to the world. Um, and so I think that was a big starting point for me. Yeah, and I think I've gone over a good bit in the past, kind of where I came from. Um, but one of the things that's really stuck with me kind of in my journey towards privacy is a, a conversation that I had on on my podcast way back when uh, with someone who goes by a smuggler. And he kind of he talked about this concept of how privacy is really essential to being human. Um, and he, he kind of pushed it past what what I've always viewed as kind of the technical aspects and the the financial privacy and, and these things of of making sure that we have the ability to choose who knows what about us. Um, but I, I love that he really clarified for me that the things that make us human, the things that make us unique are ultimately the things that we choose who knows that information about us. I mean, if if we have no secrets, if we have no things that are unique to us and that we haven't told every single person in the world, that we haven't blasted on social media, we ultimately are giving up our humanity in that sense. And so the ability to choose privacy, to choose to reveal information as we will, instead of someone else pushing surveillance on us or pushing to, to collect all of our data with or without our consent, that really does ultimately make us unique and, and give us this, this sense of individuation and um, individuality as humans, which I think is a really important, deeper concept that that helps to drive home why privacy matters for me. And I think for, for non-technical people as well. Um, and obviously kind of how, how I got into the privacy world was actually coming in through Bitcoin. And then uh, unfortunately didn't really learn about privacy from Bitcoiners that I was around then. Um, it wasn't really too big of a focus in the circles that I was in or the podcasts I was listening to. But once I kind of got into the Monero community, Obviously, that's a very privacy-focused community and one that that focuses even more than just on financial privacy. Um, and they really helped me to understand that financial privacy is vitally important, but it's also only one piece in the the cog of having better personal privacy. Uh, so that was really kind of the, the start for me there. Um, and when we talk about privacy being violated, when we talk about these, these uh, different entities, organizations that are jumping in... Um, we we usually talk about like governments or corporations, but um, before we move on to this one, any quick things you want to add, Zach, or Q&A on, on the last question about what privacy is, why it's important to you, or, or what woke you up? Yeah, I mean, I think what, what you were saying uh, just, just made me realize that each of us uh, practices, I guess you could say, like uh, we all have different images of ourselves. We all have different sides of ourselves that we display to different people throughout the day, right? So there might be a specific side or personality that I display at work, and I might also display certain aspects of my personality to, you know, my significant other, right? And so I think that the idea of privacy is the ability to selectively unveil, you know, parts of ourselves. I think 
we're all doing that every single day based on the different people we're around, the different settings we're in. And so I think even people that don't really think they care much about privacy, uh, they're, they're constantly doing this every single day. And so I, I think it's so important uh, to remember that. Yeah, and that's a reason why I've kind of like, I've shifted away from trying to push back on these these common tropes that people bring up of like, um, no one, I don't have anything to hide. Like, no, I have nothing that I, I care about that much. Because when you actually talk to somebody and you actually get into how they live and how they approach day-to-day life, how they, how they approach the world, everyone cares about privacy. You may not name it that, but like you said, the, the, the way that we choose to act around one group and another is ultimately leveraging privacy to be able to to be who we want to be in those in those scenarios and even just like you said the, the work personal life dichotomy that most people live or that many people live is one where we are choosing privacy and we're choosing not to reveal personal things at work and not to reveal maybe work things in my personal life um, and everyone has that in in one sense or another so it's definitely something where even when people think they they don't care about privacy or even say they don't care about privacy um, ultimately they really all do um and jumping back into to what I was starting there, uh, we talk about privacy being violated by other people and not just us making a personal and intentional choice to give up control information, um, but really surveillance and privacy violations being pushed on us by outside entities. Um, but when we talk about that, who are we mostly worried about? Yeah, I think this is a really uh, interesting question to dive into. Um, the the obvious uh, and kind of default answer, I guess, would be you know the big tech conglomerates. Um, most of the population are either entrenched within the Apple ecosystem or the Google ecosystem. You know, they share all their files, their photos, uh, Facebook messages, you name it. It's all been shared through one of these main sort of tech conglomerates, and. Um, Clearly, most of these don't have a very good track record of respecting user privacy and, and dealing with that data in a, in a sort of um, privacy-preserving way, shall we say. Um, but the interesting sort of uh, thing to think about here is that the, the line between these large corporations and the government is becoming increasingly more blurry. Um, and the, the, the sort of seeing where one stops and, and the other starts is, is getting more and more difficult as uh, as uh, th- these two sort of entities grow closer together. And we've, we've seen that with various different uh, subpoenas and information requests. And you can see it from Bitcoin exchanges or, you know, uh, conversations between uh, Google uh, and I don't know, any any three-letter agency that you can come up with, um, all sharing information back and forth and using Dragnet surveillance in the form of apps that they've kind of entrenched slowly into um, into our lives um, for, you know, under the guise of making our lives easier. And, you know, arguably they probably do make a, a, a large proportion of the, of the population's lives easier by being able to easily and quickly share and communicate and be social online, et cetera. Um, but clearly that's with, that comes with massive uh, privacy trade-offs. Um, sadly, most of which uh, the population are, somewhat asleep to um and again i think we we touched on this last time we recorded in in the fact that um most of the population uh either don't care that they're sharing this information with with tech uh conglomerates and by proxy you know the government essentially um 
and I think it's uh, bestowed upon us, uh, you know, privacy preserving, sovereign, seeking individuals like us and the people listening to this spaces to try and wake uh, those people up to the to the need for why sharing this information with these uh, these large corporations might not be a good thing, um, especially in the long term. Yeah, and that that crossover between corporations and governments is not one that hit home for me initially. When I first started thinking about personal privacy, I really was just focused on um, corporations and didn't really worry about what governments were doing. I, I think a lot of that kind of comes from the privilege of having grown up in a country that is relatively free in the U.S. and and not having to to deal with an oppressive state or an oppressive government um, yet. But when you start to understand the Snowden revelations, when you start to understand the ways that governments wielded corporations as weapons throughout COVID, when you start to understand the uh, suppression of free speech that governments were, were again, applying through corporations um, by putting pressure on them to, to enforce uh, censorship that they specifically wanted, it, it, I think, started to open up my eyes to how these, these groups are really working in tandem most of the time now. Um, Sometimes that's because the corporations want to, sometimes it's not, and it's because the, the the governments around them are able to to pressure them into doing things that maybe they don't want to do to their customers, um, but are, are are forced to. But we've we've seen time and time again that that really, while we may be most worried about either corporations or governments, the the two are working hand in hand more and more, and it's becoming more important that we. We understand that if we are giving up all of our data to corporations, but assuming that governments aren't getting access to that, um, I think we're going to be in for a, a, a painful wake-up call later on. Uh, so that's one of those areas where you, I think you have to fold more and more different entities like corporations and governments into your threat model, depending on, on where you're at and what specifically you're trying to protect. Um, but the, the lines really are blurring over the past few years. Yeah, totally. And there's some recent examples of that. I think the most recent example is actually uh, actually came to light in the last 24 hours with you know the FBI not only uh, you know working so closely with Twitter, but it just came out that they were paying Twitter as well. I don't know if you guys saw that. Um, but this 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 was posted I think yesterday evening in one of the you know the Twitter uh, releases, which is crazy. So not only is Twitter just going around censoring, uh, whatever the FBI told them to, but they were being paid by the FBI for their time to do so. Um, and then maybe another example, uh, more on the financial side from the COVID times was the trucker protest in Canada, where the government decided, the Canadian government decided to uh, put some individuals, uh, freeze their freeze their financial assets, put them on essentially the, uh, you know, the, the list of accounts that need to be frozen. And banks complied and credit card companies complied instantly with this from the government. You know, I mean, maybe there was pushback on the back end. We don't necessarily know all the details, but uh, it, it really does seem, as, as both of you are saying, uh, that there's not much of a difference between corporations and government anymore. You can make an assumption that if you are storing any kind of content, let's say photos that are sitting unencrypted on a company server somewhere, that at some point, some government will probably, either a government or a hacker or an employee of that corporation 
will access those photos. You know, if it's not end-to-end encrypted or if you're not hosting it yourself, it is going to be seen by, you know, some other uh, party. And and that party is very likely to be at some point, uh, you know, a government. Yeah, just want to quickly chime in because you mentioned about the financial aspect of of this sort of uh, blurred lines. Um, Something that uh, is always a a small worry in the back of my mind is that, um, you know, in the the short time that Bitcoin's been around, um, it's not really... uh, had to operate in much of an adversarial environment and by adversarial environment i mean sort of coming under attack direct attack by uh world governments um that day is inevitably looming closer you know that could be in one year it could be in 100 years we don't know but it's inevitably if bitcoin uh achieves its goals for true peer-to-peer electronic cash then eventually governments are not going to like that and the the blurred lines between um say let's just say that i wouldn't say they're large corporations but sort of um bitcoin companies with lists of bitcoiners and how much uh bitcoin they all own through the nature of uh kyc which is unfortunately the way that most bitcoiners are onboarded um is going to become um a, a big weak spot for the the blurred lines of well let's just say it's not even a blurred line is it the, when the government comes for bitcoiners they've got a, they've already got a ready-made list uh, of people of who they should they choose to, you know, deem necessary to go and pay a visit to because they've, you know, they've got that big list of who owns what, when they bought it, exactly how much they've, they've got. And, um, yeah, that's quite a, a sobering thought for me um, in terms of uh, tying it back to, to Bitcoin. I don't know why I didn't ever think of KYC as being a perfect example of this, but it, I mean, it, it really is. It's, it's governments pressuring exchanges to collect data to surveil Bitcoiners and to provide that data to governments either all the time or at their request. I mean, it's a, it's a, a perfect Bitcoin specific example of these lines being blurred between governments and, and corporations. Um, and again, I think most exchanges would rather not have to touch anything related to, to KYC, would rather not have to collect that, 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 that ID information or anything like that. But they're pressured by governments. They do it and they give it up because they realize that that's the easiest way to make money is to, to go ahead and just go ahead and comply, bend the knee and, and make it happen. Um, but that is, a, I think, a very clear and, and present example of these, these lines between governments and corporations blurring and how they're working together to exploit our lack of privacy usually and to, to surveil us there. Um, now, finally, getting into the the combination of personal sovereignty and privacy um we've we've kind of outlined what privacy is we've talked about the the essentials of who is trying to exploit a lack of privacy and surveil um and we talked about kind of what woke us up to that need for personal privacy um but how do the two really tie together what what's the scenario like if we want to have personal sovereignty, but we don't take our personal privacy seriously. Is there a world where that's possible or, or, or is privacy really essential for personal sovereignty? I, th- I think that they are essentially intertwined. I don't think you can have sovereignty without privacy. And I, I think we've talked about this before. I think when I actually did your podcast, Seth, a while ago, we talked about this as like, what are the aspects of, of sovereignty? And like, h- how do you define sovereignty? How I would define sovereignty is like, I'd look at it almost as like a triangle where on, on one of the corners you have 
money, which you could argue is like um, maybe self custody, right? Being able to store your own keys, store your own money, and, and have full control over your own money. Uh, another corner of the triangle is uh, data or data and identity. So whether that's like storing your data so only you can access it, an example of that would be end-to-end encryption, uh, or even better, you know, self-hosting your own infrastructure. So money and data. And then I think there's the privacy aspect. And and I think you just hit on it where um, it's, it, yes, self-custody is like important. And obviously we as a company care a lot about self-custody because we make uh, wallet hardware and software, but I don't think it goes far enough uh, because if all of your financial assets are on a list somewhere on a corporation server and, you know, with, with the government as well, uh, we, we we've seen throughout history how you know your your money can essentially be taken from you. I mean, you look back into the 1930s with Executive Order 6102, where they said gold ownership was illegal. So the 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 best thing possible is to have a database of everyone with their exact financial holdings and exactly what assets they're holding. And so I think that if you truly want to be a sovereign individual. Uh, it's not enough to just be in control of your money and, and your data. You also need to be able to be in really good control of your privacy. Yeah, I think uh, you absolutely nailed that, Zach. And uh, something that I'm big on, especially internally, when we're sort of talking about approaching new features or additions to, to Passport or Envoy, I always sort of harp on about taking a, a holistic approach and, and considering all of the basis points Um when we when we go through that process and i think personal sovereignty is is quite similar to that where you know you use the analogy of the triangle and i think to a certain degree you know if you remove one of the corners of the triangle yes you could to a certain extent you can still have some personal sovereignty uh, but you you very much leave yourself open to to attack from whichever corner of that triangle that you've kind of uh, you know the leg that's been kicked from under you so to speak um so yes you can have some certain level of uh, personal sovereignty without privacy to tie it back to our conversation um but that is severely diminished and i think that the holistic approach is is by far the best uh, unfortunately you know anybody that's been in bitcoin for any any short length of time has realized that you know that's not an easy thing to to do and to do well um so hopefully with you know ed- education pieces like this and easy to use bitcoin tools like passport and envoy that we can we can play our part and and help people uh through that journey towards uh, personal sovereignty. Yeah, I think y'all, y'all knocked that one out of the park. I mean, the the only thing I'd really harp on again is that you you can have some sovereignty, but ultimately you you leave yourself very vulnerable if you don't take personal privacy seriously. Um, because you you will have sovereignty until someone takes advantage of that that gap, realizes they can they can collect data about you or surveil you, and then use that to pressure you to to follow whatever they say um and that's that's one of the things i love about this this idea of crypto anarchy is that the idea is is not that you're overthrowing the state or something like that but that you're building tools that tools and communities that allow you to exist within the state's framework but make uh, unjust laws and and regulations etc unable to be enforced on you through the use of privacy cryptography uh, things like Bitcoin, et cetera. Um, and so it really is the the way that you gain the fullest of personal sovereignty is is by leveraging personal privacy in a powerful way there. 
Um, and what about Bitcoin in the same way? I mean, can can Bitcoin grant financial sovereignty if it's not used in a privacy preserving way? I mean, you touched on it a bit, Zach, and in covering that just doing self-custody, even though that is is really a vital first step to even using Bitcoin at all, because arguably you don't own or use Bitcoin if you don't actually hold the keys yourself. Um, but can it grant financial sovereignty if you don't learn to use tools like like CoinJoin, like Samurai Wallet, like Whirlpool? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm yeah going to tie it uh, loosely back to, to my previous point where, um, yes, you can um, have some uh, personal sovereignty if you don't use Bitcoin in an absolutely private way. Um, Self-custody is a is a, a prime example. Um, yes, you're sovereign in the fact that you're truly holding the keys to, to your savings or to your, you know, however you treat Bitcoin. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and by doing so, you make it significantly more difficult um, for somebody to take that wealth away from you. Um, but, you know, if you were to kick away the corner of the triangle, let, let's say, and, and uh, not buy Bitcoin uh, in a privacy preserving way, let's say you do it through a KYC exchange, then unfortunately you are on that list that, that Zach was alluded to earlier, where the government could easily request that information and know, you know, Zach bought free Bitcoin on the 20th of December at this price. And this is the address that he withdrew it to, um, you know, so th there's, there's absolutely levels to all of this sort of stuff. Um, and I think to, you know, come back to the, to the light a little bit and make sure that this doesn't all sound a little bit doom and gloom. I think, um, sovereignty and, and privacy by proxy is, uh, is a journey. Um, and it's something that, all of us, well, certainly us three, I know, would openly admit to say that we're not perfect at, and it's a journey that we're still uh, heading on um, day by day. Uh, so it's something that um, I think it's not something that you should look to uh, have perfect from day one. If you do, fantastic, I'll take my hat off to you. Um, but I would say that most people don't do that and, and they learn as they go. Um, and uh, yeah, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good um, and to just slowly start to make steps towards uh, your your uh, personal privacy, uh, especially around Bitcoin uh, with that, unfortunately, uh, super transparent ledger. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that that privacy really is a journey in Bitcoin and it's not something anyone should expect to just wake up tomorrow and have perfected every piece of it because it, it, it is complex. It takes it takes a bit of learning. It, it has a, a relatively steep learning curve, uh, but it really does enhance the, the usability of Bitcoin. Um, but... You touched on it a little bit there. I think the the low hanging fruit really is if you can avoid KYC, if you can avoid giving over your ID and all your personal information when you get the Bitcoin that you have, you really escape the the worst of the surveillance and the the simplest surveillance that's available to exchanges, to corporations, and to governments. Um, and so, if nothing else, that is really the the first place to start because it, it at least severs that clear tie between your ID and your Bitcoin addresses, your Bitcoin wallet, et cetera. Um, but once we move past KYC, how do the two of you view the state of Bitcoin's privacy today and where it needs to be in the future? Yeah, I think it's interesting to segment almost KYC out into its own category because I think we're all pretty familiar with the downsides of KYC, of which there are many, as we discussed. But I think what's not discussed often enough is the actual state of uh, 
Bitcoin privacy for the different tools that we're already using today, like wallets, for example. And this was definitely a wake up call for me. Uh, you know, you can use, let's say, a hardware wallet and you have self custody, but you might not have privacy. Uh, a good example of this is, uh, and I, I t- tweeted about this, I think, some number of weeks ago, uh, about Ledger bragging in their funding decks and in some of their um, keynote presentations about exactly how much Bitcoin and uh, Ethereum is stored on Ledger devices. And the only way that you know that is if you either collect all the public keys of, of from your users or if you uh, collect, you know, essentially all of the um, Bitcoin addresses, right, that your users are sending funds to. Um, and then you log that information and you, you know, have some uh, scripts and stuff internally to add up, you know, all that, all that Bitcoin. Um, and that's crazy to me, right? Because that means that even if you're taking self-custody, uh, most wallet software is just connecting over the internet, you know, over the clear net, to uh, some Electrum uh, server uh, node that is controlled by another party. Sometimes it's that company or sometimes it's someone else's node. Uh, We know if if you've been in the space for a while Mm -hmm. that a lot of the public Electrum nodes are run by uh, chain analysis companies, maybe even government to collect that data. So it really is like a privacy minefield, even if you're self-custodying, if you're not running your own node or if you're not uh, using Tor you know, to connect to someone else's Electrum server, you're basically exposing all of your financial transactions to one or more third parties. And that's just not something that is really talked about enough in the space. And I think it's really important that we educate users um, about how all that works on the back end. I think that's an interesting point that you make about you know the default way that most users unfortunately use Bitcoin is that they share their transactional information with with uh, a, a trusted third party, which uh, bizarrely is not the way that they would use the fiat system. Um, you know, when when if somebody gets paid from their fiat job, um, their employer has no idea where they spend their wages, um, and I see no reason why that should be the default within Bitcoin. Sadly, as you just touched on, Zach, with with certain wallet setups that are quite commonly used, um, that is unfortunately the case or is a possibility due to Bitcoin's uh, transparent ledger um, and the the way that most of these wallets communicate direct back to to uh, a home node and and share address information over the clear net. So, um, yeah, sad to see that that's still the norm today. Um, But I will say that I am uh, hopeful um, and sort of uh, optimistic about the way that uh, the Bitcoin privacy tooling uh, is improving. Uh, that's almost exclusively coming from uh, the wallet software space. Um, we've seen Sparrow Wallet go from strength to strength uh, in the last 18 months to two years uh, to become the de facto um, desktop wallet um option for most people uh, that are getting recommended now which is great to see and craig's done a fantastic job there and it's my go-to desktop option we've seen the samurai guys um continue to iterate and, and become the de facto mobile mixing client um and you know that's been echoed in the uh, the postmix liquidity that's going from strength to strength and is uh, around about six thousand two hundred bitcoin 
currently locked in uh, to uh, to the post-mix uh, liquidity pool, which is not exactly jump change at the moment. So that just shows you that there is, um, you know, both increasing uh, UX improvements, uh, both on desktop and on mobile, but also an increase in appetite from users as well that are leveraging these these tools because they're improving. Um, and you can see that in the hard numbers of, of you know, uh, metrics like the, the post-mix uh, liquidity. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, I think, like many things, there's a, a reason to be optimistic and pessimistic. But I I do love that uh, that the wallet space, I think, really is hitting its stride and we're seeing a lot of improvements towards better privacy. Um, and I think the combination of that comes from both understanding that Bitcoin on chain, that the defaults of layer one are not going to change. So we have to do everything at the the app level. And so so projects like Samurai Wallet and Sparrow Wallet um, like what we're we're working on, it, it it's really the area where we can improve Bitcoin privacy and we can make it more approachable. We can lower the barrier to entry um, and we can make it something where almost anyone can use Bitcoin privately. Um, and so it's it's exciting that that I think we are starting to gain traction there and, and seeing a bit of a snowball effect. Um, and I think the other reason for that comes to the fact that people are finally starting to understand that lightning is not the end all be all for privacy and that it doesn't fix every Bitcoin privacy issue on its own and that ultimately on chain privacy folds into lightning privacy. And if you don't care about on chain privacy, you'll have issues in lightning. Um, and so I think the combination of those two things is both going to improve our tools for on chain privacy within Bitcoin and, and is improving them and will help us to be sure that as we continue to build out Lightning, we can do so in a way that that thinks deeply about transactional privacy um, from the ground up and, and focusing on both on-chain and Lightning together will be really valuable in the future. But but on-chain really is the the key place to be for for privacy right now. Um, but why do, you, why do you think that it's been such a struggle to get more projects and companies to focus on user privacy? I mean, it feels like for me that the last few years in the space, and it's it is starting to shift. But the last few years in the space, a lot of the focus and a lot of the usable tools for privacy on Bitcoin have really come out of Samurai Wallet and the community around Samurai Wallet, and and not much else. Um, but why do you think that that there's been such a a lack of focus on user privacy in the Bitcoin space up until now? I think it's uh, twofold. Uh, first of all, uh, most people just don't care about privacy as much as they do about uh, UX. Um, you know, as soon as you start adding privacy tools or privacy preserving networks like Tor uh, into your Bitcoin wallet, um, you unfortunately unlock a whole host of UX hurdles and headaches as well, uh, which undoubtedly hampers the, the user experience and makes the wallet more difficult to use. Um, so most people are not technical. They don't have the time or the bandwidth to, to sit down and learn about what all these privacy tools do and how to use them. Um, so they look for the easiest option and, you know, people these days default to something like blue wallet or they default to something like moon wallet, just because it's easy to use. And I can completely understand that. Um, so I think that's the, that's the first thing. And I think the, the other thing is that, um, Companies would rather um, dedicate their their time uh, or the developer efforts to, um, aside from UX, to to you know making a sustainable business, and that it's quite difficult to do that with um, 
you know, with, with a privacy tool. Um, clearly, Samurai and Sparrow book the trend there. Uh, and, you know, it's it's plain to see that we're all big fans of their, their the way that they've monetized and long may that continue. But outside of that, um, you know, companies have a much easier time um, making a wallet that sells some Bitcoin that they can take a, a haircut of to, to keep them sustainable. And, you know, I don't judge people for that. They, you know, everybody wants to build a sustainable business at the end of the day. And um, most people just, uh, most companies take the, the easier option and, and allow the users to, to do something like buy Bitcoin from within the app. They can take a fee and, and you know, contribute to their own sustainable business model. I, I totally agree on the money side. <laughs> um, if you're a wallet developer, it's just so much easier to plug something into your app to allow someone to buy Bitcoin uh, than it is to figure out how to make money in maybe a more interesting uh, way that also benefits the privacy of your users. So I think that's that to me is like one of the most important points here. And uh, it's almost like it's easier to add traditional uh, web business models or just like traditional tech business models in general to your app, even if you might maybe you should be thinking more creatively about the business model. So a good example, like from, from Ledger again, is uh, not only can you buy Bitcoin or crypto within the app, but you can also get a credit card. You, know, you can also, uh, I think they're working on some insurance tool. You can also buy NFTs <laughs> on the NFT marketplace. So it's almost easier just to add in all like the traditional no-brainer stuff to just try to make money from your users uh, even if it really goes against your principles as a company. And so I, th I think that's kind of like the unfortunate truth. If you're interested in adding privacy tools, like something like even CoinJoin, for example, I mean, there's stigma around it. It can be very challenging from a technical perspective. I think most teams don't don't have that internal knowledge or ability to do that. So uh, most people just fall back to adding the ability to buy Bitcoin or crypto you know, within your wallet application. Yeah, it certainly is the the easier approach. I mean, especially within Bitcoin, where privacy is is not the the layer one default to just focus on other ways that are easy to make money and and not care about user privacy at all. Because it it isn't the easiest thing to do from the wallet implementation side, and it's definitely not the easiest thing to build a business around. Um, but I'm thankful that entities like Samurai Wallet have been able to build a strong business around that. And it's a it's a beautiful thing when companies and projects are able to build a sustainable business without sacrificing user privacy and user data. And unfortunately, that's rare, but we're seeing more and more of that as people do wake up to the need for privacy, both within Bitcoin and in the broader space. Um, so that that is an encouraging thing and something I, I want to see more and more of. Um, but wrapping up here, last few questions, rapid fire. Uh, if you had to introduce someone to take actionable steps to improve their personal privacy in just two minutes, how would you do it? Yeah, if, in just two minutes, and this is rapid fire, I would say uh, make a list of the the things, the aspects of their life that they want to improve their privacy with, uh, and just pick one and do it well. Uh, don't try and attack all of the all of the things, you know, immediately because you're just gonna burn out, get tired, and think, ah, oh, screw it, it doesn't matter. I, I, I don't value privacy anyway. So make a list, prioritize, pick one thing, do it well, get that nail, get comfortable with it, and then move on to the next thing. Mine actually has nothing to do with uh, Bitcoin or, or our industry. But if you are an Apple user, uh, there's a new tool called Advanced Data Protection. 
that enables you to turn on end-to-end encryption for pretty much everything uh, on your iCloud, uh, which is huge. And it shows, I think, that privacy is winning, I think, in the hearts and minds of, of the people. Uh, because for Apple to you know offer end-to-end data encryption uh, is, is a massive reversal in their policies to date. It really does only take a couple minutes. You just have to update your devices to all the latest iOS versions, and then you can go into your iCloud settings and enable it. And it's so worth it. Yeah, I love that they added that. And I was very surprised that it actually happened because it, it does seem that they're moving past just privacy as a marketing gimmick to something that's truly useful and and actually harms their ability to collect data, which is a, a great sign. Um, for me, I think in two minutes, I would just say, find a good community that's privacy, that's passionate about privacy, get plugged in and start to help out and listen well. Uh, second would be switch to a privacy preserving browser like either Brave Browser or a hardened Firefox. Uh, and then third would be just start using a privacy preserving messenger, something like Signal, something like Threema, uh, and trying to get as many of your friends and family to start using it. Um, Signal has been the go-to for me because SMS is so big in the US here that it's pretty easy to convert people to just using Signal for everything. But with them removing that, I, I think I'll probably try to start switching to Threema more and more. Um, second quick rapid fire question. How about with Bitcoin? If you wanted to walk someone through in two minutes actionable steps to improve their privacy, how would you approach that? Yeah, mine's going to be uh, explaining the the risks of KYC um, because I'm I'm a firm believer that if we can start to onboard more people and and ensure that their first step is uh, obtaining Bitcoin in a more privacy preserving way from a peer to peer market like BISC, Hodl, Hodl, RoboSats, Peach, etc then you're starting 10 or 15 steps ahead of the rest of the competition and and the steps that you take thereafter are, are important but they they uh, carry much less weight um, than they would if you join through um, a regulated exchange where you've got to hand over you know your your child's middle name and your inside leg measurement etc so kyc risk would be my step one uh, after that i'd uh, do a self shill and send them towards my privacy guide um, at bitcoiner.guide/privacy uh, for me, if it was like, a, what, what would I do in an hour? I'd probably say <laughs> run, run your own node. Uh, but if you only have two minutes, I would probably say uh, switch to a wallet or if your wallet has a setting that enables Tor by default, definitely start using Tor by default uh, with whatever Bitcoin wallet uh, you're using. So if, if you use you know Passport with Envoy, our app, we have Tor by default set up. If you're using Sparrow, you probably are using Tor. Uh, if you're using Samurai, you're definitely using Tor. But a lot of wallets, like Blue Wallet, for example, they don't default to Tor being on, uh, but they actually uh, do have the ability to turn it on in settings. So I would definitely check if the wallet you're using is able to connect via Tor. Um, other, obviously, it's it's better to run your own node, but at least if you're connected over Tor. Uh, the person who's actually running the backend server, uh, the backend Bitcoin node, is unable to see your real IP address and is unable or has a much harder time correlating any transactions, you know, to your identity. Yeah, definitely explaining the importance of both the risks of a transparent ledger with Bitcoin and the risks of using someone else's Bitcoin node would be the go-to for me because so many people don't understand how much information you give up when you use a remote node in Bitcoin. 
and they're ultimately giving up every address, every transaction, uh, the amounts, obviously every bit of information about how they use Bitcoin, they're giving it up to a single remote node and usually doing it over ClearNet. I mean, just like you were talking about Ledger's default approach and Ledger Live that does that, and it doesn't do a good job of explaining what you're actually giving up. Um, so it really would be hopefully running your own node and that is getting easier and easier day by day. Uh, and then if not, it's making sure, like you said, to to use Tor by default. So at least you're getting some some network level privacy from whoever's running that node or whoever's uh, handling that wallet. I think those are, are two really important ones to add on to, to what has already been said there. But last question. What's one privacy tool, either within Bitcoin or outside of Bitcoin, that you're most excited about right now? I actually have to like repeat myself for this one. For me, it's still Apple's advanced data protection feature. <laughs> and I, I don't want to sound like I'm simping for Apple or something, but I think for like the average person, it's it's massive. So seriously, turn it on if you're if you don't already have it set up. If you have a hard time with it, I don't know, DM me on Twitter. Like I'll help you out. It's like if you're an Apple user, it's the most important thing you could do right now to, you know, radically improve your your privacy. Yeah, for me, I've got one one non-Bitcoin and one Bitcoin. Uh, the non-Bitcoin one um, is Bitwarden. Uh, I use it every day, multiple times a day. And the the in terms of um, the little amount of time that I outlay to um, to set that up versus the 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 payback that I get from it every single day in terms of ease of use and the the improvement in my privacy from not having to use the same password or go to my handwritten password book that sits next to my desktop computer or anything like that. Just having that, that ease of use. Um, yeah, I, I'm massively bullish on, on Bitwarden and it's my favorite non-Bitcoin tool. Uh, and for Bitcoin, um, mine would be Envoy uh, that I'm most excited about, which may raise a few eyebrows um, and hopefully that's for good reason. Uh, but yeah, that's what I'm most excited about is, is Envoy as a privacy tool um, and the things that, that we've got in store. Um, so looking forward to see how that one unfolds next year. The teasers abound. I love it. Thanks for jumping in for this episode of Journey to Sovereignty. And I hope you'll join us for our next live Twitter space every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. GMT. Joining us live gives you a chance to listen in, participate, and get your questions answered on the spot. Follow us at FoundationDVCS on Twitter to keep up with the latest news, get notifications when we go live, and much more. See you at the next one, and thanks for joining us on the Journey to Sovereignty.